Hello and welcome to Kaleidoscope, a podcast series from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by AppCam, in which we will explore stories of scientific encounters that lead to incredible outcomes. My name is Sean Sanders. There is a proverb that states, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Although popular culture likes to venerate the lone scientist making the improbable breakthrough discovery, this doesn't reflect the true nature of the scientific endeavor today. Rather than being built by solitary scientists working late into the night, science is a highly collaborative enterprise that depends on cooperation and teamwork for mutual benefit. In this series, we're exploring how connections within the community, whether serendipitous or intentional, drive understanding and progress to new heights. How the journey to a new discovery can be as exciting and inspiring as the discovery itself, and how the personal stories and passions of the scientists create a vibrant community that makes progress happen. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Oded Rojavi, a professor at Tel Aviv University in Israel. His self-described mission is to challenge fundamental long-held dogmas. So I'm going to be asking him about how his approach to working with others in his lab and to his research allows him to do things differently. I'm sure this is going to be an interesting conversation. Oded, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to, to talk with you. The first question I wanted to ask is, I understand that there's a fascinating story about a collaboration that started in a rather unusual way. So I'd love if you could tell me a little bit about it. Sure. So normally in, in my lab, we work on epigenetic inheritance and these type of things. We are molecular biologists, but we ended up working on something very, very different. And the way that it happened is kind of revealing about how unusual collaborations form. So what happened is that when I just joined the university, that was 10 years ago as a PI, there was a, a retreat for new faculty. And when it came to go to dinner, I happened to sit on a bus next to a researcher who was a biblical scholar. His name is Noam Mizrahi. We didn't know each other before. And we started talking about what each of us does. And I told him a little bit about worms because we work with C. elegans nematode. And he told me about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the subject that he studied, these ancient scrolls that were found in the desert in Israel. And, and then he said, you know, there were also worms in the scrolls, digging holes. And even some researchers looked at that and they looked at the patterns of the holes to try to understand better the history of the scrolls. And we started thinking, what can we do together just because we enjoyed talking with one another? We kind of, you know, very freely discussed idea and we thought maybe we can use molecular biology techniques to study the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we understood that uh, because the, the scrolls were written on parchment that are made from animal skins, perhaps we can extract the ancient DNA of the animals from which the scrolls were made, sequence them, and try to use this information to piece together different scroll fragments. And we ended up doing that very successfully. It was a very challenging project that took more than seven years, but it's by far the best and most fun collaboration I've ever had, just collaborating with someone who's so different from a totally different world. So what do you think it was about your conversation with Dr. Mizrahi that sort of moved you to work with him? I think it's just when you talk with him, you see immediately that there's a fascinating person there that you want to work with. And you are exposed to a world of knowledge that is very stimulating. 
to hear something that's just totally different. And then if there's goodwill on both sides and you just find an excuse to work together, there wasn't really a need for that. But uh, that, was, that was the entire fun part of it. Now, you also have a background in art, and I'm wondering if that in some way colors the way you do your science, think about your science, and even think about your collaborations. It might be related. The way I see art is you try to find new connections and say something new about the world. And if you collaborate with someone, the, the more different they are than you, then the, the higher the chances that you, you'll actually do something new, you'll bring a new perspective. And it's about creating something that is stimulating and challenging. And in some cases, even the motivation is just to, to do something inspiring. And for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that wasn't useful for humanity. It wasn't curing any disease, which what we are expected to do as a biologist. But it was just inspiring and fun. Your work with the Dead Sea Scrolls brings to mind for me the importance of science community, of scientists all over the world coming together to talk about their work, even though they are in very different areas. So what role do you feel that communicating your science, being able to talk to people across disciplines is important in building this active and, and robust science community? So we have so many language barriers, so many technical terms. For a biologist and a biblical scholar to understand it some, each other, it's not simple. And you know, over the course of these seven years, we learned a lot of vocabulary. Noam is a, such an excellent communicator, so that was crucial for that. And also, you know, sometimes some people might consider that boring, but the way he tells it is so fascinating that you immediately want to, to work with him. So I think that it is very, very important. If you can't communicate your science in a simple way, clear way, then you'll be stuck just with working with people that do very similar things to, to what you do. Now, what role do you think this broader scientific community plays in fostering collaborations and academic partnerships? Does it bring people together? And is that your experience that by being part of this community, you've developed strong collaborations? Yes, I think we have so many com communities, sub-communities, communities that overlap with each other and that are totally separate. So, for example, I work primarily with this model organism, C. elegans, the nematode. And there, the, the worm community is famous for being very, very supportive and helpful. And being part of the worm community is just wonderful. So for example, in our community, all the reagents are shared freely. Everything is open. It's very, very easy to approach the most important people in the worm community. Some of them could be, you know, Nobel laureates and so on. They will still answer your email. Being part of the worm community is amazing. We also have our meetings, our biannual worm meetings, and, and that's wonderful. And we all appreciate it greatly. Do you think that there's a role for social media in better supporting science and building community and collaboration? I do. I do. I mean, uh, social networks are complex. There are good sides and there are bad sides. I think that the, the good outweighs the, the bad. There's obviously a great need. People in science are eager to hear what others are feeling and that they feel the same way and, and have the same troubles they, as they do. And it also helps illuminate different aspects of the day-to-day the, the -day of, of scientists that you otherwise, I mean, you, you could feel very isolated, but here you see that people all over the world are feeling the same things and you get exposed to all these subtle things and, and ways to deal with the difficulties. And also, of course, just when it comes to the science itself, it helps spread science. You know about everything very fast. Every talk in a meeting, every paper that comes out, your network will highlight it for you. And also, you know, I work from Israel. It's in the Middle East. It's not really the center of the scientific world. But because of, of, of Twitter 
everything is equal and you get the same opportunity. This was especially true during COVID when everything shifted to Zoom. Then it was, you know, total fair game and it was great. And I think some of it stayed, some of it was lost when we got back to, to flying, but it does flatten the world. And it, I think that is wonderful. And also everything is in the open. You can't be a bully. You can't be, there are certain things you can't do just because you're in the public eye and, and, and everybody knows about it because of social media and Twitter in particular. You've said in the past that you see your students as equals rather than putting yourself above them in some type of hierarchy. How do you think that this way of working developed and how has it impacted the way you do your work and your lab does its work? First of all, I think that it was a re realization. It wasn't just some decision of mine that in science, as, as professors or PIs, we, we don't really manage people. We're not working in, like in the regular people that you actually have employees and you tell them what to do. It's just not the way it works. Part of your job is to train them. They are replaced all the time. So you can't really boss them around and expect them to do what you tell them. Even if you don't believe that's the case, it's just a fact. I mean, you, you'll have to deal with that. And I understand that. I treat students, postdoc, uh, technicians, everyone as collaborators. So it's part of this big con conversation where we're having about collaboration in the lab, even with your people, you are in, in charge of their scholarship and, and paying them. But in the end, they are your collaborators. They're not your employees. They don't have to, it's not the army. They, they, it's all a collaboration. And in science also, people won't really do what you want them to do just, you know, in order to get paid. It just doesn't work like that. It's not like regular employees, you pay them, they do something here. It's always a negotiation and a collaboration. So you're, with your students, with collaborators from other universities, it doesn't matter. They have to be interested in it. They have to be excited about it. This is their only reward. So, so it's, it's collaboration. It's not an exchange for money and, and it shapes the way we do science and everything. I think that's a really fascinating way to think about it. How do you feel that the students and the postdocs and the technicians in your lab have responded to this? Have, have you got a very positive response or are some a little bit unsure about this because they're expecting a, a sort of an employer-employee relationship? They are their own boss, sort of. And they, of course, I will try to guide them in the direction that I want. But in the end, we treat them as adults. This is their project. I will survive even if it won't work. Of course, I want it to work, but it's the end, in the end, the, the person who's most in charge of their success is themselves. And I'm here to, to help them any way I can, but we are all independent scientists working together in a group. And, and I think that I think some like it, some don't like it. Some people want to be told more what to do than others, but uh, the people who succeed best in my lab are very, very independent. So when you're bringing new team members into your lab, you're essentially looking for collaborators, not necessarily employees. Is that right? Yes. And, and this affects many decisions. For example, in the hiring process, I really like taking people with very complementary set of skills. For So for example, we recently had a new student join who did his degrees in economics. So that's very different. We have people that come from computer science and, and physics and mathematics and art and philosophy, all kinds of things that really complement us because that's not, we are not experts in that. But they learn the C elegance and the biology things fast and then we all gain. So yes, I do look for collaborators and it has been working very well for me. Are there particular traits that you look for? I'm guessing you want people who are independent. You want people who are going to maybe bring different skills to your group. I want all of that. I want independence. I want different skills. I want them to be smart and preferentially also hardworking and uh, enthusiastic, but I also want them to be nice. 
and that I can work with them and enjoy working with them. Uh, at the end, we want to have fun. If we can't get along, perhaps because we, we're, just, we're just not great uh, fit together, then, then it would hurt the work. Every new person that joins the lab, meet everybody, all the students, uh, everyone else, and, 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 and they vote and they tell me their feedback. And, and it's very important. And you can never get it to be perfect. There will be conflicts, but we try as much as we can. And it's, it's a big, big challenge, but we try. I was talking with an assistant professor who's based in New York, and she was saying that entering into collaborations is very much like a relationship. You sort of, you're, you're almost dating at first and you're trying to figure each other out. So I don't know if that <laughs> resonates with you at all. It's true. It's, it's a relationship. It evolves. It's long. So you have to, to work with someone for years, typically. So it is a little bit like marriage in the sense that you're also getting a divorce. It's a big deal. It's not easy to, to break a collaboration. I never fire anyone, for example. Firing is extremely difficult in academia and also you want to avoid it. It's like a marriage, not like dating. It's much more serious than that. Well, this has been great, Odette. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking with you. Thank you very much. Our thanks to AppCam for supporting this podcast. AppCam believes that progress happens together through the creation of a connected and supportive scientific community. To learn more about how you can progress with AppCam, go to appcam.me slash together. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening.